Well, thank you so very much. It's uh, a pleasure to be back. Um, and uh, it's been a delight to see the government develop under the new keeper. That's to do all the ghastly things I used to have to do of writing safety, um, safety sheets for the use of a spade and Anyway, um, this is the beginning of a, a series of lectures. Well, I'm sort of warm-up man uh, for, for the people who come after it, considering the sort of John the Baptist of the series. Hey, I'm a salve, hello, John, you're welcome. But uh, um, my, uh, coming later are Lou Derman, present keeper, is going to talk about groups, which is his speciality, and uh, about GM, which he, yeah, he has a lot to do with. Then, then we have a talk about uh, the use of plants in um, uh, development of uh, pharmaceuticals. And then we have Chris Lieber, my colleague, uh, or ex-colleague who was head of the department, who's going to talk about the more philosophical side of GM and stuff. So it's, it, it, it's, it's quite a, a star-studded array, except it's a start, I'm afraid. It's a start without <laughs> you. And the other, I mean, and I've really got this difficult task because uh, I've got people here who are trained setters in the world of genetics from some time past, but probably still around these days, and people who don't know an awful lot about genetics. So I'm taking a Teletubbies approach, and uh, I'm looking for something for sort of, uh, you know, sort of a, a general ownership of the, uh, of the event. And so if you don't understand anything, or you think I'm wishing on unnecessarily, do say so. And then I'll, we'll probably end a little bit early, if I may, and then we can have a question-answer session. It's very often things, not just why was that blue or why wasn't it. It's, if you've got questions that, uh, about modern-day genetics or genetics as a type of plants and stuff that you, you think I might be able to help with, or generally around here might be able to help with, I see Tim sitting here. Um, we're very pleased to help. So it's, a, it's more, of a, more of a group hug than a talk. Okay, now I'm wrestling with the technology here, but I always like Bruce uh, pictures. It's just a page, the face of a tiger I like so much. I'm utterly bewildered by the whole thing. So, we're going to have about the, the format. I'm always told I'm lecturing. You have to describe what you're going to do. It's going to be much more interesting. Wrong, but I can still describe what I'm going to do. Uh, talk a little bit about the history of where, how we got where we are. And then talk a little bit about the key things. Not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about DNA molecules and transcription and translation and what happens on the ribosome on a Tuesday. But I'm going to really talk about um, how you get from genes to stuff, if you know what I mean, and preferably green stuff. And that's the most interesting thing. This is the, the subject of developmental genetics and it's one of which I've been involved in for a very long time. And uh, I hope that some of the excitement will rub off with you, of course, maybe not. Okay, so we go way back in the days of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and all the rest of it. Maybe a hell of a lot of that plant, really. I mean, they, the crops they used were reasonably sophisticated, and they knew a little bit about genetics, but a lot of mysteries to them. They knew that you see from one plant, it generally produces a plant at the same time. That was a mystery uh, to some people in the Middle Ages. Two, bringing the two flowers together results in intermediate seeds. So if you bring sort of, one particular plant and another plant with characteristics together, what you get is a sort of melange of those characteristics sometimes. Some features vary from generation to variation, and some don't, and that, that was really quite interesting. That whatever, you know, there was vari variability in certain things, maybe like leaf shape or flower color or whatever, but other things, say plant architecture or flowering time, didn't change. And this really worried them. They didn't understand why that was. They didn't understand why things varied and, and um, why they did. And then, of course, the results were often very unpredictable. So, in the Middle Ages, things shuffled along a bit, but not a lot. There was a lot of study of traits and characteristics, and the view came along that the, the character of a plant was somehow embedded in it. I wasn't quite sure how this happened, but somehow a plant had a character, and this character was, uh, um, was transmitted to the next generation. But it was a sort of holistic approach. It wasn't the idea of genes or whatever. 
and uh, that uh, somehow this character morphed in some cases when two plants came together. And there, were, there was a theory of dominant, but some plants were dominant to others, but not in a genetic sense. So this was sort of interesting, but not a very fertile uh, state of affairs. The thing that's confused in the 60s and some things or others, when it was suddenly discovered the plants and ourselves and everybody else were not a holistic thing, uh, we may consider ourselves easier, but composed of cells. And uh, if I can persuade this thing to move forward, Robert Hooke and uh, the use of the microscope, which was uh, developed in Holland and by uh, other groups around the world. And this first thing he really looked at, of course, was botanical, which quite sensibly looked at cells in cork. And he said these pores or cells, which are not very deep, but consist of a great many little boxes separated. Um, one continuum, I don't assume to go off the end there, uh, by certain diaphragms, i.e. cell walls. And this was a tremendous advance, and a really philosophical problem. The idea that living beings, creations of God, of course, were composed of little bits. And that was, that, that was a worry. It was also a worry for these theoretical geneticists who were around in those days, because whatever characters or traits or holistic assembly of, of the plant or animal self couldn't be sitting in the middle, the, in the heart or the soul or uh, whatever the same was of the plant. It's had to be in little boxes. And that was really difficult. Difficult for the church and it was difficult for people. And uh, you can see here that uh, these boxes, these are these uh, algal cells. And when they looked at the microscope, even better ones they were looking at mammoth, you couldn't see very much of the evidence of cell wall character in them at all. Well, in the 1860s, Gregor Mendel came along, and people, people change about Gregor Mendel, he's in, he's out, he's whatever. There's no doubt he was an extraordinary person. Um, he he, 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 he learned from people and he, he stole ideas from people and all the rest of it. But he came up with this tremendous synthesis, which really hasn't been paralleled in the history of genetics, of putting a lot of stuff together to make some sense. And he worked, he worked on peas, which is good. He also worked on animals, but we sort of keep quiet about that. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he developed these laws. And these are quite important. And they hold today and they underpin everything we know about genetics. Am I going at the right sort of pace? Are you running on me? And I'm not going fast too slow. Okay, right, good enough. Well, the first law of segregation, that every individual possesses a pair of alleles for any particular trait. Now that was really important. What it said that for a characteristic, there was an, a pair of some things, you call alleles, which are these companions, and these were characters or factors, and that the parents passes a randomly selected allele of only one of them to its offspring. So that if you contain genes for um, two particular types of eye color, and uh, we're coming to about uh, uh, dominance in a minute, one will, only one will go to your child, uh, one will make me, of course, go to the next. The offspring receives only pair of alleles for that trait. Whatever of the two alleles in the offspring is dominant depends what the offspring expresses in the trait. And this explained a whole gamut of completely unintelligible results. Is when you got, particularly in the so-called F1 generation, this one here, when you brought your two characteristics together, this is what we call peas and smooth peas, all of a sudden all these things are smooth. How could those real peas? Finding their rights to be wrinkled peas suddenly turn out into smooth peas. How, how, how did that happen? And the answer is that there was a dominance relationship between the two. And that was, that was really new and, and exciting. And the other bit, um, yeah, the randomly se selected copy, and uh, this comes to, to his second uh, uh, 
second law would come to me. This is just a summary of an experiment. He did some breeding experiments with peas, round and wrinkled peas. The first generation he found were all round, and then when he crossed those, of course, um, um, most of them were round, but some of the wrinkles suddenly popped out of the out of the woodwork, and that again uh, explains why you had uh, you know, a population of plants or animals or something. And they put they were nice and consistent. All of a sudden, these weird characteristics came out, and that's because two of the wrinkled alleles got together in that population and turned out the wrinkled here. Right. So this is this is this is just the, uh, the sort of genetics of it. This is this is the the peas here. <laughs> this is the peas. This is the pea generation, not because they're peas; they just have to be called pea generation. Um, these are yellow. Uh, uh, and we've got yellow and green here just for, just for, just for. So you've got, they're all yellow because yellow's dominant. And then you've got um, a vast majority of yellow because in those combinations where you actually just put a row of all the contributions from both plants together on both sides, that's the numbers you get. And I don't really want to go into working out Punnett squares with you here. I just want to go and get the take home messages. And these are two other useful uh, uh, points to make out of this. That is this concept of phenotype and genotype. You always hear about it and read and whatever. The genotype is what the genes are and the phenotype is what you see. Genes are genes and stuff is stuff. Phenotype is peas, beans, gerbils, whatever you want. It's what you actually get. The, gene, the genotype is a theoretical concept of what's in the genes. Uh, what's encoded by the genes. So his second law, which I've already touched on, was that his, um, the separate genes, the separate traits, are passed independently. And this, again, was a surprise, because people, having brought up this holistic idea of the character, the, the essence of a plant or an animal, couldn't work out why suddenly you know, individual traits were separated in the next generation. That person always had brown eyes and fair hair, or the plant had a, a yellow stick, stipules and pink, this, that, and the other. They're always together, but they get separated. How could that happen? And the answer is there's a sort of one along bandit with these uh, <laughs> uh, genes running around the circle. Every time a plant produces a gamete, it pulls this out, they whiz round, and you get a new combination. This is called recombination or reassortment of genetics. We'll come back a bit more. So Mendel, although these don't seem to be world-shattering uh, discoveries, the, these were really very important because they told us that uh, you could really honestly think in terms of factors, characteristics, alleles, or whatever. There were genetic determinants, and that really, really put them on the map and that they were independently assorted, and that there was a dominance and recessive arrangement, which gave these really weird numbers. Okay? And this is, these readouts of these things are just so dramatic. This is a corn, uh, a corn ear, which is segregating for a variety of um, genes, encoding anthrocyanin, which is a colored pigment, and you can see how confusing it is. <laughs> because uh, corn's wonderful, because you, you do your genetics experiments and you just read it like a page. It comes out with all these that you work out how many whites, how many purples, and uh, you work out how things are segregated. Now, maize has been a really important tool in both in old fashioned genetics, but particularly the new fashioned genetics, which uh, a number of us work in, and the reason the new fashioned genetics is given by these little spots here. And these little spots I'm coming back to later on because they're caused by a very strange form of mutagenic agent which nobody really believed in except someone called Barbara McClintock, but one which has really transformed our, our ideas about how mutation occurs. Okay, so that was minimal. So a lurch really from uh, uh, this holistic approach to this very particular approach that individual factors being assorted and inherited and having relationships, dominance and receptive relationships with each other. Now, 
where are they? And that was the question that people were asking uh, from the, the end of the uh, 19th century, I suppose, in the 1890s. And looking in cells, there seemed to be a good case that there was something in the sepulchral nuclei. And uh, the things going for the nucleus as being the centre of genetic activity of the cell were that there was all the, you couldn't really, apart from red blood cell, which is really governing that, um, you couldn't have a cell without a nucleus. And the nucleus did some sort of strange thing, like we seem to divide, condense into, into, into chromosomes, chromosomes being literally coloured bodies. And uh, it seemed to be very much part of, of the division system of the cell. And also, well, they, they did stain very well, so people were very interested in it. They were, they're, they're called, they're basophilic. That's the old uh, uh, 19th century term for this. It means they stain with basal dyes, therefore it's the contained acid material. Some there was an acid in there which uh, uh, not knew about, but it certainly certainly should be important inheritance. And uh, this is the sort of, uh, this is just a present modern picture of this sort of thing, you know, a bit of a, bit of a, a root sort of thing that we will show you next, next week or whenever the next talk is. And you can see the nucleus, which is fluorescent in this case, doing all sorts of various stages of the cell cycle, where this cell cycle will be an event in one, one generation to prevent in the next. And you can see this one's just divided, the wall in between. This one's separated its chromosomes. This one's starting to condense its chromosomes. So there seem to be a series of events in the, it, it, it going on inside these cells and centered around the nucleus. And this, this acidic material, which turned out to be really quite complicated, wasn't a protein. It turned out to be a, um, a nucleic acid, which is a whole lot of uh, Purines and pyridines are just sort of ring compounds bolted together. And these seem to be absolutely pivotal to uh, uh, genetics. So just this is just a this is just a, a navigation point. Uh, so this is two plant, most plants contain two sets of chromosomes, one maternal and uh, one paternal. So this this is building on what uh, uh, Member was talking about is that you've got a donation from the mother and the father, and, the, and you get a sort of some sort of reduction that goes on during sex cell formation, fibrillation pollen or eggs, and they come together to form what we know as a diploid organisms. Characters such as fly cover are controlled by pairs of genes, one in each chromosome set, and they're called alleles, and this is the sort of shorthand that we're interested Okay, it was known some time, but uh, chromosomes contain DNA, and these are just some fluorescent chromosomes sitting there. These are just morbid interest of being uh, stained to show uh, it's now possible to show those domains occupied by genes, and particularly things like uh, 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 genes that are involved in producing lots and lots of stuff, so they tend to duplicate themselves as well. Okay, so really, how do you move from these DNA molecules, which no one really knew very much about, to something that actually codes something? And uh, of course, we know the story, but pretty well by now. Uh, Maurice Wilkins and Rosie Franklin, who I put on purpose, bigger than Watson and Crick, who get from the north to straight up from the nose if everything's flat, um, um, sorted it out in the late 50s, early 60s. Maurice Wilkins and Rosie were the, were the people who sorted out the structure of DNA, and Watson and Crick, after 25 beers, uh, someone came up with the idea how it all worked. <laughs> the equipment looks, uh, well, so I guess we were all working like that in those days. <laughs> Watson, Watson's face is just amazing. Improved <laughs> much this thing. Okay, so this is what we came up with. Basically, you've got a double helix. And you've got your bases on the outside here, where um, uh, adenine, thymine, and then cytosine, granine, and uh, code, the famous code. And the, the key thing about this is that uh, it's a ribbon. It was very fashionable, of course, in those days, and information was carried on tapes. Um, and the idea of a tape being in the nucleus that contained information uh, was obviously very attractive. 
Um, sorting out how the information was encoded was a bit more of a problem, but it turned out that triplets, just uh, uh, triplets of these bases, encoded amino acids. So the theory was, see what we've got here. Um, firstly, you've got the DNA bound. This is a chromosome here. The DNA is very, very, very intimately wound uh, around a protein called histones. And these days, histones become very, very important indeed because it turns out that uh, a lot of the, much of the inheritance that is important to both animal and plant biology, med medicine and stuff like that, is not DNA-based as we're talking about it today. A lot of it is so-called epigenetic. It's encoded by proteins associated with the DNA, which decides whether that DNA is available. So all of a sudden, all these proteins over the last 10 years have become incredibly important and explain a lot of childhood diseases. And things like crop yields. Crop yields were complete misfits. I'm wandering off here. But crop yields were complete misfits. Uh, genetically, there was a lot of interesting, important information about the inheritance of the yields of plants and stuff. But very often, things just went off the rails. And it wasn't understood why this was. And it turns out there are other factors affecting uh, crop yields, and uh, we, we can talk about them later if anybody wants. So the DNA was wound and packed very intensively inside the chromosomes. And this is the sort of level of sophistication I like. This is how stuff works. And, uh, this is the, but basically what happens is an enzyme, a very large protein, runs along the DNA molecule and transcribes the code by those bases into a, an RNA strand. Very much as you go into a library, sit and look at a book, and write and take some notes. It then goes out of the library, out into the workshop of the cell, which is the cyclist on the outside. It sits down by a machine, which is called a ribosome, and passes this tape of information through the ribosome, generating chain of amino acids, as the thing goes through, very much like a tape head, um, the assembled on the sort of jig that is formed by, the, by this molecule goes through, uh, various amino acids are added one after the other, they are then bolted together to form a protein. And all this does is take the information out of the DNA, take it out of the cell, and turn it into protein. Well, you may say that's all very well, uh, lots of protein, hundreds of proteins, but there's a lot of other things. There are cell walls, there's carbohydrates, there's fats, there's lipids. It's not encoded by DNA, where does that come from? And of course, as most people know anyway, um, the key thing about the information that comes off the DNA in terms of the protein, it turns into enzymes, and enzyme assemblies run into pathways, and there are biochemical pathways modulated by enzymes, which produce lipids, carbohydrates, and the rest. So this, these other things are sort of second generation products of this information on the DNA strand. So this is, this is all pretty Mickey Mouse stuff, but um, it was new and very exciting in the 1950s and 60s, and sorting this out actually transformed uh, the sort of biology we do, because it's possible to extract DNA, read the code, and sequence it. It's possible to take the messenger RNA, to read that, see what's written in it. It's possible to make our own RNA and put it back in the cell. It's possible to make our own DNA and put it in the cell. And all this sort of GM stuff, I, I know that, that uh, Liam will be talking but this is, to my mind, getting on the interesting stuff. It's DNA encoded with thousands of proteins. And they all sit there in the cell. But how on earth do you organize it? It's bad enough getting undergraduates to open the door. I'm told them they're all running around doing things talking about their phones and stuff. But how do they get organized? And really, I think, the, to my mind, the, the advance of the. the the, the last, uh, I guess it's maybe 50 years now, is that it's really getting genes organized 
to turn into things we understand and see. And the key thing to this is a little bit at the front of the gym. There's a thing called promoter, and that is the control unit. If you have a gene, it contains an ability to produce a protein, but it really matters when it's off and on. It matters whether it's on at a particular time and whether it's on in a particular place. And something has to be associated with that gene and look around and say, am I on yet? And if I'm not, go back to bed. And when this gets out of, out of, out of kilter, a lot of horrible things happen. So um, the, the promoter, which was drawn here as just a little blue bit, is really quite complicated. And very often, the bits of the promoter are seeded through the gene itself. And there is a sort of thing at the end which stops the gene transcribing. But um, this is good enough for now. And the key thing is that the promoter is looking for factors which will tell it whether we go off. Sometimes those factors are quite straightforward, like acidity. Um, sometimes by cooperation with other protein, heat and things like that. But most often they are looking for transcription factors which are the products of other genes. So just about everything that's going on in the moment is a product of a gene network. Complicated interaction of genes that is talking to each other, turning each other off and on by making products and uh, uh, activating each other's promoters. And that's why it gets so complicated. So this is what the promoter actually looks like. Here we have the um, DNA one around the histone. And this is trans transcriptional activator or transcription factor. And then there's all sorts of bits and pieces right at the beginning. The tata box is the sort of start, you know, the grid where they will start off. And uh, here's the RNA preliminaries poised to go and start making RNA. But it will only do so once the promoter tells it what to do. And this is just a gene network I pulled off the, off the web. It's to do with uh, <coughs> forest trees, actually. Um, but uh, you can just see these are all genes, these little numbers here, and these are their various interactions. And I think this is a very straightforward And so you can see why systems biology, as it's called, ability to understand genes is right, is incredibly important. And it also tells us how incredibly fortunate we can be to have understood anything so far. Because, um, you know, when you sort of kick one gene, 1,200 other genes, 400 yards away, will jump into life and do things. And the very fact we've got, we understand some pathways, we understand how some things develop, it is really a miracle. And actually, the answer we understand uh, that we do understand things is that certain key developmental events are controlled by single, single genes. What this sort of network allows you to do, although this one isn't particularly elegant in that respect, is for one gene to receive a particular message from somewhere and then activate whole streams of genes to do other things. So you can get massive changes in differentiation, in development, in whatever, by just a single gene change. And uh, both in plants and animals, this has been really spectacular, perhaps, in the development of the body plan of, uh, of plants and animals. And that's what I'm going to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so. Right, so uh, are we all right so far? Can you ask a question? Of course. I thought I was kind of average intelligence, but I must say it's way over my head, this. But um, uh, what is the relation? I'm going to do the intelligence, it's what you know. Fats, proteins, carbohydrates, things that you put in when you have breakfast in the morning. Yep. Is that the same thing as the protein inside which you were talking about there? Yes, I mean if you, if, if you look at if you look at a, a part that make, makes seeds that go to your breakfast cereal, your puff wheat or um, whatever you have, contains carbohydrate made by enzymes that are encoded by the DNA. And the carbohydrates are put into the seed and also contains proteins like zoin and all the rest of it. Yeah, these are the proteins. The proteins that I eat at breakfast are containing DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, well, 
yes, you've ignored a lot of DNA today, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're not very transgenic yet. But um, the, um, the, the proteins that you eat are, and carbohydrates you eat, are encoded by the DNA. They're not DNA themselves. They have provided the instructions for the enzymes, the little machines, to make the, make, make the, the carbohydrate you eat. But of course, by eating a seed, or by eating a lettuce leaf, you're eating lettuce leaf, you're eating live genes. But where else are we So, right. But that cannot influence my uh, genetic composition. No, can it? No, can it? No, 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 you can't. Because uh, those genes are, uh, I'll tell you, they've gone through a digestive tract, they're no condition to do anything in those days. So, no, no. Personal reflection is <laughs> Okay, um, but please, please do ask. So, uh, I think one worse, worse than listening is having to give these talks. So, <laughs> right, so this is the thing that really surprised me. This is a fly, Drosophila, which is the sort of, uh, it's a fruit fly of zoology. The animal which we know most about, really. And one of the really surprising things, and work done in the Zulich Department of Oxford helped to underpin that, was that the genes responsible for making this hideous thing are all very much gathered together. The key genes, the so called homeotic genes, the, the master controller genes, are all together in a particular order, uh, often on the same chromosome. <coughs> So just, that's just odd. I mean, if you've got 20,000 genes and there's been recombination and the assortment going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But here we have a succession of genes um, which are very similar throughout the years. And uh, these, these genes, along with this little, little thing here, Drosophilus is so-called Hoxie complex, a whole bunch of things. And they, even in the order they're laid down on the body plan, do you see? So the gene sort of reflects the the layout of this embryo. This is the sort of embryo which of course turns into a little caterpillar thing, rather than when it turns into a fly. Then it goes into bananas. And uh, the, then if you look at mice, the way the mouse body plan is laid out, and this is the, the sort of spine and uh, beginning of the mouse embryo, it's the same. It's absolutely extraordinary that this, that this structure is maintained at a genetic level, something that wasn't expected. You'd expect it to be these genes to be randomly sorted all over the place, and, but they're not. They're in order, and they're very similar to each other. And uh, there must be a reason, and I think we'll hypothesize what it is, but, it, but it's extraordinary from one point, because it's been very helpful to research, because who to the gene next door is likely to be involved in this sort of thing. And these are master controller genes. These are genes which control whole screens of development. Um, you know, the, the whole head region of laying down the head, not everything to do with it, is encoded by that first little bit. Now, unfortunately, plants, although they do have some sort of body plan, um, don't, don't do this. You can't just look down at down a uh, 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 down the crocus and say that's the leaves, that's the stem, that's the roots. Uh, it doesn't work like that. But uh, from plant, animal developmental genetics, this has been very good. And one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, it may not be obvious to you, and one of the main reasons between plant and animal developmental genetics is sort of encrypted in all this. What do you expect the difference between plant and developmental genetics? Short quiz after this. Missing uh, <coughs> Sorry? Differences, but 
you can't muck around with the shape of sleep, right? size or shape of a fly, because it won't fly. It will crash, it would be called a crash. And um, it wouldn't be able to find its mates, it wouldn't be able to find other bananas, it wouldn't be able to do all this stuff. And that's because very tight regulation of size and shape. If you can be a plant, that's a disadvantage. Maybe at the seed that you would that generated you fell behind a stone and you put a little root up, it's all dark and you can see a bit of light, it's all anthropomorphic of course. And if plants will grow, they will search and find the light and they will grow in a shape which is entirely tuned to their environment, both the sort of geology, the morphology, and the and, uh, and the water environment. So if they're in a, a damp rainforest, they'll grow, they'll grow tall. If they're in a blinding flat savanna, they'll grow fairly short. A bonsai tree, they'll grow like that. And a pine tree, they'll grow like that. But it's the same genes. We can't, flies don't do that. It's a very good job, as far as I can say. foaming 
like a volcano of cells that is generated from here, and the plant grows by falling these cells. It's like if, if you have a volcano, your volcanoes are, of course, look like mountains. They're not mountains because volcanoes suddenly burst out of mountains. They're original volcano probably came out of crack. It's because it's built up lots of lava and turned itself into a mountain. So this is what happens here. Cells are formed, and as they form, the cells then move off like lava flow, and, uh, and more stuff comes up, such that these cells, as they come around a bit further down here, they start to develop into things. And as they go down here, they start to develop into leaves. And this is another big basic truth about plant development, which is different from animals, is that plant cells are generally very flexible, they're not committed when they arrive, they hang about and take the best offer of what they're going to do. And if they find themselves here, they're in this, uh, a field of signals from various um, uh, genes that are on in that area, they will turn into a leaf. If they go somewhere else, they'll turn into something else. Animal cells are quite committed. If you take a cell from a an eye of a drosophila and planted it somewhere in the abdomen, abdomen, it'll carry on being an eye cell until it dies. So it's a, again a great difference. Plants are flexible, animals are fixed. Okay, so what happens here? Well, now I'm going to talk about two genes, and two genes which don't like each other very much, clavata and mushel. Mushel is a gene um, that is expressed I turned on only in this area here, right at the base of this little fountain. And its job is it tracks the transcription factor and it turns on genes and makes cells. It's a cell engine gene. It makes loads and loads of cells and they well up and they come to the surface here. Well, that's great, like all these things. And people say, you know, oh, that's wonderful. The really interesting thing about developmental biology, all these gene things that go on and they control this stuff. And the interesting thing about developmental biology to me is when things stop, stop things. And the answer is what stops worship is a gene called clavata, which is a sort of molecular sheepdog, which says, okay, we've had enough. You know, we can make these cells, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna run around all over the place with your mess. So what happens in a normal wild-type shoot, there's a central cell of these central stem cells. I know it's a stem, but they are stem cells. They're, they're stem cells like stem cells. And um, they then, as, as the, the thing grows, these stem cells then differentiate. Well, how do we know that clavata controls mushroom? Well, the answer is, if you knock out clavata, and it's possible to, uh, in Ramadopsis, the plant that we use, to knock out genes by uh, variety methods I'm not going to here, but turn it off. Of course, the sheepdog isn't there, and we sort of think it's Christmas, you know, I'm going to make those as well, and you just get a huge central zone. If you turn off bushel, you get nothing, you get no stem cells formed at all. So that's how you find out that you still need this is incredibly important. So this battle between these two genes results in a steady state of these stem cells being formed. And here you can see this is just an experiment by Elliot Myrovitz's lab. Here, that's the, that, the, the, the green stuff is the stem cells, and here on the outside is the so-called peripheral zone where stem cells shouldn't be, because as these things move over there, so as the plant grows, they should be start forming things like leaves, like this is going to be a leaf. However, if it, don't worry about the central one, it's a bit more complicated. If you then start expressing bushel where it shouldn't be, like in this area here, then you get a huge amount of these stem cells being formed. That tells us that bushel is responsible for the stem cells. And these sort of very simple experiments by using um, and the nature of this colour is the fact that we attach a fresh marker to the gene as it's expressed. The gene messenger RNA produces a protein which, which then becomes fluorescent. So you can see where these genes are off wrong. So if you actually start looking down at these things, you can see what I'm talking about. This is the apex here, uh, producing all these cells. It's not moving, of course, because it's uh, dead. But it, and uh, you can see a leaf there, a leaf there, and a leaf there. And this is an early one, you've just got two. 
that is going to end up with a filler tax with one being round as the thing grows on. So what's happening, the cells that are being produced, this fountain at the top, are then being recruited to form leaves as, as, as the thing moves on, and those leaves are starting to grow off on their own. This is even more interesting. This is another one that's produced a, a very early offshoot, which is actually turning into a flower. I know that because I know what they look like. But you can, using this as a scanning electron microscope picture, uh, it's obviously pretty small, and you must hack, have to hack away quite a bit to see what's going on. But just to see the, these cells just turning into these organs at such a specific places and times, you can say you plot them. Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant system. And this is just some more pictures to show what's going on. So this, this is in a, in a grass, which has got a rather different layout. And you've got the beginnings of the leaves being formed, not because they green, because you can actually see the lumps here. And you can do various calculations as to where you expect these things to appear. And the question is, okay, you've got this apex slowly growing, um, but what decides, A, why doesn't a leaf appear on top? Because if it wants to make a leaf, why doesn't it do that? And why is it produced with this beautiful filler taxon? And the answer is beginning to emerge that this is a game because of its, its relationships between genes which don't like each other. At that very early embryo stage, but that one where the so-called heart-shaped embryo, where you've just got, just a, you can see the number of cells, very few cells, something is clearly happening. So you're producing these two cotyledons. They're not the ones that, uh, of course, go to the spiral. They're the ones that form the dicots when you, when you just plant a brassica uh, plant or plant a mustard seed or something. You just get two little things. These are the two cotyledons. And there's another player in this. I haven't mentioned <coughs> Plants and animals have fluid messengers called hormones. And hormones are absolutely critical for this because this is, in many ways, how genes talk to other, each other. One of the key things that happens at these so-called apices is that hormones are generated. And there are genes that move these hormones around, and as, as these hormones are generated uh, uh, and uh, moved around, they start to have an effect on other genes. So here we have a polar optoxin transport arrows. So what's happening here is a bit of a bit of hormone there, but it's being moved up here. And we know that because we can see that we know about the genes that do that, and you get accumulations. This is false colour yeah, put on a scanning electron microscope image. What it does, the hormone accumulation here shuts down genes in this area here. And if it shuts down genes, and then the genes um, cut shape, cut leaving, and shoot meristem. These are just two genes which say, I am a meristem. I am that bit at the top, and I don't want to be into I don't, you know, I'm just going to produce loads and loads of cells. But in this local area at the top here and here, those are shut down by the fact that auxin is put there. Now, if that happens, of course, if these genes are shut down, other genes are allowed on, because normally these genes suppress leaf-making genes. The very fact that auxin has gone there and shut down the meristem-making gene allows the leaf-making genes to get out and play and start making leaves. And uh, you can see this again, this is a rather more complicated picture. Here we have, uh, they've all got these incredibly unintelligible names, but anyway, there is a relationship between the so-called NOx genes, which are the, the family of genes which control the, the territory in the middle. They are the meristem genes. They have a, a very uncomfortable relationship with these so-called AS1 genes, which are involved in maybe making leaves. And so where NOx and AS1 have this sort of tension with each other, when NOx tends to fall off, AS1, AS1 becomes in the ascendant, and uh, where AS1 is in the ascendant, it allows the beginning of leaves to develop. It gets more complicated, there are all sorts of other genes involved in STMs, another one, but it's tension between genes, and you can say, well, what sets up that tension? Those genes were there, is that gene sort of expressed there out of nowhere? No, it isn't that the player, the hormone we're talking about, it's how the hormones is moved around. And so the, the key thing about whether you get a plant or you don't get a plant is how you move that hormone around up the tip. And here you can see these green things are 
lethal-looking genes, and that red stuff in between the, uh, the cells there is a molecule, product of a gene, which directs the flow of oxygen. This so-called PIN, um, PIN form or PIN, uh, PIN gene. And that is directing the flow of oxygen up there. And by nature doing that, it's allowing the meristemic genes to be switched off and the genes to cut out and the leaf genes to come on. Now, that's a very important principle. You know, lots of <coughs> systems work like this, but uh, at the apex, it's just particularly nice. Do you understand what I'm talking about there? Do you understand how interesting and exciting it really is? That just the tiny little area, you've got little, little genes that move the auction around, it's moving a tiny little bit, sets up these asymmetries. These genes come on and slide out between each other, and uh, you, you, you get leaves in this beautiful pattern. And even the leaves themselves have a top and bottom to a leaf, but in fact when you're making them, of course the leaves are sticking up, they're, 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 they're facing inwards and facing outwards. And you, um, you get a leaf, which looks on my hand here, and you think, oh, well, you just make a leaf by just growing themselves. You don't. The leaf again is a battleground between genes expressed on this side and this genes expressed on that side. And they have a continual running battle around the outside. And where the outside is, the leaf margin develops. And if you knock the top bit out of the leaf, the leaf won't fall because it won't be able to get the outside, the outside genes will win, and you will you won't get a you won't get a proper leaf on it. This is what's happened here. Well, these are that's the meristem. These are these being formed. One, two, three, and then one. Four or five, uh, that's out of place, but uh, leaves being formed nicely. But here, you've just got a huge meristem. That's because the inner face of the leaf won't form, because it hasn't got this gene called Phil 9, which says, I'm the top of a leaf, get back, you are on the back of the leaf, and uh, I want to expand. So the whole of the creative tension is what derives the, the, uh, the development of the apex. And also beautiful pictures as well, they're not mine, they're from the Marrakech slide as well. So, that's all very well. We've talked about how we quite possibly make beginnings of philotaxitis in the leaves, and making that wonderful patterning is a bit more complicated, but it's possible to explain that. So how do you make flowers? Because flowers don't have a philotaxi, they're in worlds. In uh, anybody in botanic school, you have to draw these diagrams, these floral diagrams, where you have carpels, stamens, petals, and sepals, and this is what you have here. Now, that must be formed all at once. You can't form that in succession. The good thing about forming philotaxy you can do it in succession. And uh, the answer to that was uh, worked out in there, I guess, in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, by two characters, one Myrovitz, this guy, and Rico Cohen over in Cambridge in John Lewis Institute. And uh, they sort of about how these worlds were, were, uh, were defined. And again, it's tension between sets of genes. In fact, that paper in Nature, which set it up, was called War of the Worlds, which was quite sweet, right? <laughs> and uh, shows some sense of humor. Anyway, what you have is, again, you have a floral apex, which is like the volcano again the lava going around the outside, and the cells falling into signal fields defined by these genes. But of course, what's not happening is that philotaxy, the whole thing is happening at once, and over the surface of, the, of that dome, if you want to say, you've got genes being expressed. And uh, there are three types of genes that are expressed, and these are concentric, like being cut through a, through a stick of rock, on the outside is an A gene, on the inside is a C gene, and on top of it is a B gene. They're called A because they've got different names in different plants, but they all work the same way. But the wonderfully strange or wonderfully wonderful thing that they do is that the combinations of these two genes, where they come together, they encode the instructions to make the floral organs. So the outside, A on its own, will make the sepals, which 
can't see it because I've removed them. A and B, because they're together, A and B here, makes petals. B and C here will make stamens, and C in the middle will make carpels. And it's possible to do that because you can retake these things and you get exactly what you predict. If you knock all these genes out, you get what looks like a Brussels sprout. Loads and loads and loads of leaves, because it's lost to a man who doesn't know what to go. I'm allowed to do a leaf, I'll do that. And uh, that, that, that's what happens. The other thing, of course, we get Brussels sprout, and Brussels sprout the leaves on leaves on leaves on leaves. But you don't have that in a, a normal flower, unless you've got a dove or a treble or whatever. The thing stops. And so the key thing in cell procedure is to say, right, done it, made the flower, stop. So this is so-called combinatorial uh, gene action, where genes operate together. But again, there is a tension here, because if you take one of these genes out, if you take the B gene out, which you can do, the A and C will move up to its place, particularly if you take the C gene out, A will move into that center area, and you can tell it's A because it will produce a and B, it will produce petals all the way to the centre. And some of the floral, beautiful, some of the other beautiful sort of uh, dense floral uh, uh, flowers you get are, are due to the fact of seeding. So, again, same principles, different way of doing it. And then, of course, you get something like sunflowers and whatever, where these sunflowers, of course, isn't a flower, it's an inflorescence, it's not a node, and individual florets are generated by that combinatorial world system, but of course they lay down in this beautiful Fibonacci philotaxin inside the centre. So we've got everything going on here, uh, which is, and it also looks nice, which is better than animals for a start. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to finish off two seconds to talk about variation, because I mean, it's all very well saying, yeah, it's interesting, but you can't help but notice flowers, animals, and everything are very different from each other. They must have followed very different developmental pathways. So what generates this difference? Well, the first thing I talked about was the fact that independent, these independent factors, the one on band to life goes every so often when you produce gametes, and you get reassorbed, and you get recombination, recombination of genes in the process called meiosis. This is a picture I took on my PhD, which shows how old it is. I'm surprised it isn't in wax or something, but uh, it's, uh, it's uh, Lily uh, undergoing meiosis to uh, the genes are pulling apart. Just absolutely wonderful. Lily is great to study, almost like looking at huge goldfish bowl cells and cranes over moving apart. Rapidopsis is a complete waste of time, really. but uh, I'll get around to it one day. Okay, so, but. One of the main factors, of course, we've talked about mutation. Mutation is a, a key factor in generating uh, plant varieties uh, and general variation in the world. And of course, most of it is due to gene damage, mistakes being made in replication, which result in defective gene, gene duplication caused by replication, getting what we're making two of things, and things like ultraviolet, uh, just called gene damage, and they call <coughs> stochastic mutation, which occurs. Occasionally, and, and you see it, and uh, plant breeders make use of it, and other uh, people got irritated. But one of the things that really has come up of late is that a lot of the variety we see in plants, a lot of the variety we see in animals, is due to the fact that there's, in, there's a sort of an enemy within the nucleus, which wasn't really appreciated until the 1970s or 80s. And that is, there are parasitic genes, so called jumping genes, which every time a cell divides, and particularly when it makes sex cells, will jump around in the genome. These are really odd things. So they're bits of DNA that carry themselves, and they carry their own little operating system with them. And they, every so often, they transpose, they move from one location to another, and will land in the middle of the gene. And if they land in the middle of the gene, in most cases, they'll knock it out. So this is <coughs> antirhinum, this is antirhinum major, so it's a classic anti-running the streets of sleep. This is the same thing, where the transposon, this jumping gene, is landed in the middle of the anthocyanin pathway, which makes a colour. But not in every cell. Those near the front can see this is mottled. And in some cases, the jumping gene has jumped out, and other has jumped in. And so a lot of plants that have these straps, everybody says, oh, it's virus, it's virus. 
which is, in most cases, it's a transposal where you've got a jumping gene that's jumped into a, into a, color, a, a color marker. The problem with the, these things, they're often unstable, and difference in temperature and stuff will cause them to jump again. I mean, they're incredibly useful for research purposes, but they're irritating for people trying to get uh, uh, sell, sell uh, plant lines to market. And it turns out, this is a final, final thing, is the wrinkle P, which everybody confidently said until about 1990, uh, it was due to a mutation in, um, in uh, uh, the, the, the carbohydrate system in the P, and therefore Mendel's wrinkle P. That wasn't a mutation at all. It's a transposer that jumped in it, just a, a neurogeneticist hundreds of years later. Okay, I'm sorry I've gone on for so long. Um, uh, I hope you've hung on to some of it. And I'm very happy to hang <coughs> and uh, be demolished. Thank you for your attention.